two, one, two, one, two. How's that? That's not bad. Oh, there we go. Probably a little bit more. A little bit more? Up, a little bit up. Back up. How's back that? up. There we go. Uh, just the right amount. As my just wife says, I do like the sound of my own voice. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Mr. Tyler Chisholm. Yeah. All right, man. I'm well. Uh, we are hanging out on the, I guess, the patio would be the right sure, term. Sure, yeah. I feel like we're sitting on more on the side of the street, but yeah, yeah. I think they would call it their patio. The, their patio, yeah. Uh, we've got a live view of a big truck with a trailer, and they've uh, recently done some, looks like some pavement work here. Yeah, 30, I live on 33rd and Loop, and it's been a, uh, a right disaster here the last couple of weeks. It's been dug out and filled back in and dug out. and So it's coming together, and we've, uh, we're dealing with some very real densification in this part of the city, which I understand all the reasons for it. But as a local resident, it can be those days where you're like, really? Do we really need to put more condos and more people and more cars in this neighborhood? <laughs> but that's okay. The joys of living, quote-unquote, inner city and all the perks that go with it and the uh, high volume of people that also want to live here. Yeah, I was going to say, so was it like an overdue thing or it's more to do with just the volume or like the the growth of the I think area. It, I don't think anything it did actually was to improve traffic flow I think it was probably all um, uh, water like power sewer that kind of thing it was all underneath right so I don't think it's improving the traffic situation but having a series of lanes blocked off definitely made it worse for, for you know all us, all us local car driving complainers <laughs> <laughs> are you uh, have you been in Marta Loop for a long time 10 or? years 10 years 10 okay. years yeah I love it it's such a fantastic neighborhood it's you're 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 not really, you're about 10 minutes to anything you really want to go to. It's okay. fantastic. Yeah, fair, fair. It's fair. a really good part of the city. I love it here. Are you a Calgary guy? No, Montreal. I've been, but I'm, a, yes, I'm a Calgary guy. Okay. I say that with pride, but I'm a Calgary guy that moved here uh, in 2000. So I became a Calgary guy. It took me about three, four years. I remember I went back to Montreal to visit some friends and I'm walking downtown and all of a sudden I'm like, I am not from here anymore. I feel like a tourist. And that took about three or four years. Like for, you know, you'd ask me a question, like, no, no, I'm from Montreal. I'm absolutely from Calgary now. I love it. I met my wife here, built my life, my business, uh, so many fantastic people here. So I am a proud Calgarian now, but originally from Quebec. What what brought you out here? Was it the land of opportunity early 2000s or school or? Uh, no, I came out here to fly. I was a commercial pilot. Okay. So I, um, I think my mom has a original copy from grade five. What do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a pilot. And that's what I focused on. So I did a basic science degree while getting my multi-commercial IFR pilot's license and moved out here to fly because there wasn't a lot of jobs. Like, well, move out, move out west. There, I guess you're right. There was more opportunities. There was flying up north, flying a oil patch, that kind of stuff. Yeah. Moved out here. Couldn't really get it going. Couldn't find work. Couldn't find work. And then um, not long after moving out here, 9-11 happened. So it would be like um, being a brand new, shiny 450-hour pilot, which is like bottom of the barrel pilot, hour-wise, right when COVID hit. And wondering why the airlines weren't hiring you. So I went through that wave and decided to change paths and change direction. But that's what brought me out here. I came out here to fly and I fell in love with the people. I fell in love with the profits and I stayed. Amazing. And then I fell in love with my wife. Let's, not, for, let's <laughs> not forget the key piece that happened. And but she's that, a Calgarian. She is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've awesome. been here since she was two or three years old. Okay. Okay. What, uh, what, what do you think is the most endearing thing about Calgary? The people. I, yeah. The people, man. I love it. The people like... The willingness to support, the willingness to introduce, the willingness to to listen, the willingness to hear you out, the willingness to give you an opportunity. I, I've realized very quickly, if you can provide value here, someone will give you a chance. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily about, well, I don't know your family or I don't know, you know, you don't have the right last name. And There's a little bit of that happens back east a little bit more in Quebec. You've definitely like, well, you've got your close group and people are great anywhere when they're your people but when they're not your people and you're just medium there's a little more of a wall there's a little more of a gap there's a little more of like, mm, like who are you? who are you 
And I moved here and very quickly people were open, people were welcoming and that entrepreneurial spirit of like, if I can provide value, yeah. someone's going to be interested in doing work with me or, or giving me a break or a job or buying my product or service. I caught onto that really quickly here and fell in love with it. And people are just really nice here, man. And I don't say nice in a, in a platitude like, oh, they're so nice. Like the nice Canadian in the fact nice that, and, no, uh, you completely, <laughs> there's a little bit of that, but I think it really translates into a community that is willing to support each other. Yeah earlier than some <laughs> okay okay and so how long i guess first question just so i can get it out of my head do you still venture out and fly a little bit i don't i don't i got out of it i started flying when i was 16 i used to uh, rent a plane i used to skip school and go rent a plane and then buzz my school so that did. was i didn't yeah. yeah totally <laughs> in hindsight um probably not some of the best moves my mom listened to one of these podcasts recently she's like oh I didn't. I wasn't aware you were doing that. <laughs> you, you weren't supposed to listen to that. Yeah, yeah. Long. When you late yeah. long enough, everything is funny, right? Yeah. Uh, trauma plus time equals hilarity. Um, flew till I was twenty six. Moved out here, and when you're when you're investing in your career and you're investing, whether it's paying for university or paying for flight school, which was quite expensive, and uh, that was the thing. But all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to do this for a career. I don't know if this is working out. So at 26, 27, 28, being fairly new to Calgary, spending money on flying around for fun wasn't on the priority list. So it got it drifted. And then it isn't like riding a bike. You do uh, lose some of your skills. And I've only been flying maybe a couple times where I was in the, in the, in the, in the pilot seat since, since then. I might get back to it, but I don't know. It was such a huge part of my life early on. And I would say it was very some very formative aspect of my life. Simply because when you're 17, 18, and people go, what do you want to, what do you, the question, what do you want, I want to be a pilot. Everyone pats you on the back and goes, oh, that's a good, that's a good choice. Yeah. So your, your, your identity gets wrapped into, you know, not only I enjoyed flying, I loved flying, but everyone validates your choice of being a pilot yeah, <laughs> at yeah. the time. So there was a lot of identity wrapped up in that for, uh, that once it was no longer, uh, I think I kind of just stepped away from it. It just didn't make sense. And then, then 10 years went by, to be honest. And is... I'm I'm curious in like the flight world is some is technology something that is would make it harder to get back into or easier to get back into do you think like easier easier I would say easier yeah. and when I you know I got a lot of buddies that fly I got a really good buddy of mine's an air tanker pilot so he's flying um, he's out bombing fires right now he's literally uh, in interior BC today he was working last night uh, <clears throat> he sent me a video of they were bombing right up to the edge of a road and they misjudged the drop and basically laid retardant right across the road and I think maybe hit a truck a pickup truck oh, so that yeah. kind of stuff so which was harmless and everything was fine just was not the intention but he went from flying um, like basically a private jet around doing bird dogging which is when you fly ahead of the, the larger the larger air tanker to secure the route make sure it's safe like give anybody any heads up so a fairly technologically advanced aircraft he went to graduate to a large air tanker it was a 1958 uh, it was a corvette corvair 580 which was originally a passenger liner back in the 60s and he had a hard time transitioning i don't want to speak out of school if he listens but this is him telling me because it was literally 1960s technology right yeah i went in the plane i checked it out on the runway when i was out last year in penticton you know, two years ago and literally there was like looking in the back of your grandpa's radio like that's what the the, the tech stack looked like in this yeah. in this plane and then he moved to a Q400, which is a much more advanced aircraft and very different to learn and a lot more technology. But he said, wow, it's just like there's so many systems to protect you, to support you, to help you. You still have to be a very good pilot to fly something like that at the level they fly them at. But the old technology, he struggled. And this was a 6,000-hour pilot. This wasn't a, a new guy on, on the line. So I'd say from that story, technology will make you better, safer. You still have to have the skills, though. You still got to have the aptitude. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And put in the time and do the training and pass and, and pass the certifications. Well, there you go. That's uh, fascinating. <laughs> it's so, been a journey, man. It's eclectic. Yeah. Well, 
so when when does the pivot happen so your main business which 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 one well <laughs> take me through the first pivot after flying you're here you're in calgary what's the next road you go down I found myself working in health and fitness. So back then, 01, 02, 03 was kind of the real emergence of the personal training scene. Yeah. When the average individual go, oh, you mean I can get a trainer? It's not just for the lifestyles of the rich and famous. And I had the opportunity, and some of you may, um, if you remember, do you remember American Gladiators? Oh, yeah. I started watching the documentary on Netflix I, I, last I, I, night. As literally. have I. Okay, that's amazing. <laughs> I love how it's getting this little bit of a resurgence right now where people are like, oh, did you ever watch that show? I'm like, I was of that era. Yeah. I absolutely watched that show. I met Billy Smith. And his, he was thunder on American Gladiators. Yeah. And I met him working at a gym here in Calgary. He came up to teach everyone in the gym this intrafit system that he had de- he had designed. So this and, is like pre-CrossFit kind of Oh, yeah. Idea. It was definitely before CrossFit. It was... So basically, if you bought a Gold's Gym franchise, yeah. and you could then go down the laundry list of all the different sub-franchises, the Juice Bar franchise, and then the personal training franchise, and the nutrition franchise, all things that you could kind of sub inside your business mm-hmm. to, to create, you know, one, hopefully better results for your members, but also revenue, revenue streams. Right. He was on the list. So, and the Gold's Gym owner here in, Cal- in Calgary brought him in to teach us all. So there was about 20 or 30 of us in a room. And I remember we all did the first day and I was like, wow, this guy really knows this stuff. Like he has a very scientific approach for me with a science background. I'm like, oh, this makes a ton of sense to me. Like I'm really getting how he's applying this in this world of working out and nutrition and all the things I already loved. Yeah. But it was always like, I always wanted more. I was always really hungry to learn that formula and what formula worked for me and what worked for other people. Anyways, long story short, at the end of the first day, I think, I don't know the whole story, but the gym owner realized that every single person in that room was going to cost him like five or $600 a head. Mm-hmm. So he literally came in after the course was finished and he fired half the personal tra- half the tra- people in the room. Just on the spot. Totally. Like super douchey move. And I was one of the ones that got cut. And I, I, it seemed indiscriminate. Like you don't feel like it's indiscriminate because you feel like, well, if you chose me, that's clearly something. And I kind of sat there and I went, you know what? Like... I got a few bucks. Like, I really want to learn this. I love fitness. I love the industry. I definitely something I want to participate in. I went, I walked into the owner's office and I said, Hey, listen, you had to do whatever you had to do. That's fine. I'll pay for my own course. Can I still come back tomorrow? And he looked at me and, you know, now being an owner or being a business owner and being a quote unquote boss, that you, you die, you, you, you die for your employees to want to step up like that yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> after he just fired me too. But at that point it wasn't about him. It was about me and what I wanted to benefit. And I'm like, I can learn from this guy. I really like this guy. He's a real straight shooter and he really knows his stuff. Keep in mind, this guy is six foot four, 300 pounds. He's a monster of a guy. Yeah. And, but he was speaking in a way that I was like, this just makes sense. Anyways, long story short, I never paid for my own course. I came back, I took the second day. Then I think they added on two more days of nutrition. So I did four days of training with this guy. And then very quickly used everything he taught me to become one of the most successful, and I say successful in terms of volume of clients, results, as a personal trainer at Gold's Gym in Calgary when it opened down in Canyon Meadows back in 2003. Wow. Through this, got to know Billy Smith really well. He was running Interfit down in LA out of the Gold's Gym in Venice Beach. And he's like, man, and so what he would do is he'd fly all around the country to teach all of these gym owners. He said to me, he goes like, you're a natural, you really get in this stuff do you want to come with me and learn how to teach this to other gym owners? I was like, absolutely. That sounds fantastic. I'm 27, 28. Flying isn't working out. I'm going down a new path. I'm like, let's do it. Anyways, I end up down in LA. Um, It was 9-11, so going back and forth across the border was a little bit dicey, but I would go down, spend a few weeks, come back, go down, spend a few weeks, come back. And I ended up getting, he flew me all around the country to eventually, he was like, okay, you got it. I went down to Mexico. I trained like 50 or 60 trainers down there. I was in Connecticut. I was in Miami. I was in LA training all of these gym owners 
as well as their personal trainers. So the real clincher, the next turning point here, yeah. um, is what I did realize at the time was how much time I was spending with these business owners on how to brand it, how to communicate it, how to sell it. Like teaching you how to be a, a good personal trainer that's safe and effective and knows anatomy and physiology, like that was the easy part. Yeah. All of a sudden I was like, I love working with these business owners, these gym owners. And a lot of times they were just guys with money that bought a franchise. Sure. And they made their money somewhere else and they're like, oh, I want to coast off into the sunset. Buying, buying a gym, that's a cool thing to do. But all of a sudden they're like, oh, we need to make money. Yeah. Equipment's expensive, rent's expensive. So they're like, we're going to get personal training going. So I ended up spending more as much time with the gym owners, talking to them about their business, talking to them about selling, talking to them. I was very good at selling personal training and nutrition because I was really passionate about it. Right. I could look at you and get excited and be like, oh, like this is what we're going to do and these are the results we're going to get. So I became a very good salesperson, knowing nothing about sales, just being passionate and finding out what mattered to that individual. Big secret in life. Yeah. You're not the hero. Your audience is the hero. Yeah. So I look, you know, my life makes a lot of sense when I look back on it. So that journey brought me into moving back to Calgary from LA. I was down there for probably about 10, 11 months full time. Moved back here, opened my own um, active weight loss and personal training center. And I read a book on branding back, I don't even know, 04 maybe? The 22 Immutable Laws of Branding by Al Rice. Yeah. And it was his, the thing that stuck with me, um, the book had lots of gold in it, but the first one was, if you can't be number one in a category, redefine the category. Mm. And I looked at weight loss and go, well, Jenny Craig and Weight Watchers, they got that locked. I look at the gym scene and you've got the big gyms. What about this concept of active weight loss where it's about getting your nutrition really dialed in while simultaneously working out while focusing on body composition, focusing on feeling good, not just about dropping pounds or not just about getting jacked. Like that was right in the era where all of a sudden it's like, oh, it's either weight loss or I want to get muscular. Sure. Well, no, there's a whole healthy balance in the middle. Yeah, yeah. It probably wasn't as, as trendy or maybe not as prevalent, certainly as it is now. So I built this little personal training center, uh, 2,100 square feet. We had, I think it, we had 12 personal trainers and three nutrition coaches built an online nutrition program so people could put in their own thing long before you and I could just download gonna, it for it free like on our spreadsheet, phone. basically? It was, basically. Yeah. I built the whole spreadsheet and then we, we put it into a program where you could put in your height, your weight, use body mass index, use body fat percentage, use circumference measurements. So like a, uh, an early days MyFitnessPal sort of idea? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Ahead of your time. Very much so. Apparently, yeah. yes. So far ahead, I didn't even realize. <laughs> <laughs> and then train nutrition coaches on how to coach it. Anyways, built this amazing little business which at the same time, I go to, which was 15, uh, not even 15 years ago, probably 20 years ago, I go to a backyard fire pit party in Calgary. And um, I'm new to Calgary, relatively a couple of years. I'm dating my wife at the time. She's like, you want to go to a fire pit? I, when, I, when you went to a fire party, like in, where I lived, it was like in the bush or so, like sure. everyone's backyard had swimming pools. They didn't have fire pits. Yeah. So anyways, I go to this fire pit party and I sit down, circle of you know, guys and gals sitting around and the guy beside me goes, he goes, hey, I'm Chad. Go on, Tyler. He goes, uh, you want to smoke a cigar? I was like, sure. Like, I don't want to smoke a cigar, but I'm not going to say no because I'm just meeting this guy for the first time. Yeah. Anyways, he goes, oh, I'm Chad Croker. I'm Tyler. Da da da. What do you do? I do. I'm a graphic designer. I said, dude, I need some logos because I'm starting this business. He goes, I do logos. I could do that for you. Long story short, um, uh, that was 2003, probably 2004. 2004, 2005. Anyways, Chad and I start working together, which was the start of our long, long relationship. We are, we're 15 years in business today, but I think we've been hanging out, business dating for 20 years, maybe okay. 20 plus that's a, that's years. But it all run. started. It yeah. all started based on sitting beside that fire pit and not saying no to a random cigar from a random stranger. So he helped me do all the logos and branding and identity work for um, Bodyprint, which was an active weight loss and personal training center. And I really fell in love with like branding and making it come alive and the power to create identity and the power to connect to people going, 
like what what's going to resonate with this group and we built like a very kind of tight like it was an interesting environment because it was so small you were always in someone else's space so if you didn't if you didn't all have shared values it just wasn't going to work and you've got <laughs> trainers in there that have their own way of doing things you've got clients that have their 200 pounds overweight you have other ones that are super in tons of shape you have others that have lost 100 pounds so they're empathizing with both we're empathizing with both groups up and down the chain so we built this cool little culture and really fell in love with the power of brand mm-hmm. and ran that for a bunch of years decided that that was enough of that chad and i decided to go into business together so 0708 we started the agency and um the rest is history kind of thing so we're celebrating our 15 year this year so i shut down everything else i was doing in 2009 and went all in on the agency game and been doing that full-time basically since 2010. wow so yeah you probably got more than you bargained for with that question no, I, <laughs> I love it um on the branding piece I, i'm fascinated with branding as well um what do you think are the elements of a great brand i'm just gonna dive right in there Oh my God, that's such a wild, broad question. I've read so many things about it, and I think I think that's part of why I ask it because, like, there's yeah. like if you go Google what makes a great brand, you're going to get hit with a million things. But in your experience, like real shit, like what makes a great brand? For me, I'm just going to dumb it right down because that's the way I've. The older I get, the more simple I like to keep the creepy yeah. things. I like complex things, but I realize that's just not it's not often scalable. Well, complex things complex. are really just a series of simple things that are put together. Touche. Yes, well said. Yeah, and if you can't break it down to its parts, you're never really going to understand the thing. Um, It's personality for a business. Mm. What really comes through and what makes a great brand is only going to be relevant to who you're being a great brand for. So it always comes down to your audience and what's relevant. Like, you could be a great person. Someone else might be like, nah, Seth, not into that guy. Just because who you are and who you show up in life really resonates with me. So what what is on brand for my relationship and my connection to you might be different than someone else. Or or let's let's flip it around. Like, oh, that guy, Tyler, what a douchebag. Someone else goes, oh, I love that guy because he is who he is what then and I'll bleed this into the the human side of it a little bit more whatever that is like consistency um, being able to maintain it at scale and does it just show up that way or does it actually deliver that way like the brand isn't the ad or the catchy tagline or it's what I experience when I actually purchase something from you if it's your product how do I use it how was it to buy it if I had questions how did I return it that whole experience if you're cool and shiny and hip but when I and that's great I resonate with that but when it comes to actually using the product you're unreliable it breaks it falls apart I can't get anybody to help me the using of it the service of it falls apart that lack of consistency I think is key to any brand what those attributes are are going to change from brand to brand but if mm-hmm. they don't hold together through the whole customer experience from the buy and looking at the the infinity symbol on its side we're do, we do all this work as marketers to get them to buy and understand and loop them all in they buy what happens on the other side of the, of the infinity loop right. is where you get your retention where you get your referrals where you get to like oh yeah like I really love this brand and let's be honest there's a lot of brands that we all love that we don't buy we don't necessarily like, could be an example of a luxury brand you could like love a certain car brand just because of how they've showed up in the world you might never drive one right. and I do appreciate there's two sides I think more more and more of our world I love the sex. Like, let's look at Uber, for example. Uber's a good example of a company that didn't spend a lot of time and energy on brand. Right. It was all about experience. Right. They didn't do their branding campaign until I don't even know how many years. Like, like probably split the difference if they're 10 years. How, how, how old is Uber? 10, 12 years? Ish. 10, yeah, yeah, 10, 12. But I think it was like five or six years in. Because I ran an article they specifically said, like, let's look at this company that everyone knows them. Mm-hmm. They literally spent hardly any interest on brand. Everything was about the experience. Right. And I don't know how you heard about Uber. I heard about it from a friend. I didn't see it on TV. Definitely. I didn't see an ad. I, I didn't read an article. Someone's like, hey, ch- check this out. And I'm like, this is pretty cool. I mean, I, and it was also the, 
I don't have to call a cab. <laughs> so they had that going for them. The, the What they weren't was as strong as what they, they were, were, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I think of a company like Costco. I don't think Costco has ever taken out a TV ad in their history, have they? I don't, I don't believe so. That's a great... Yeah, that is a really good example. Not sexy, sound, but you know exactly what you're going to get when you get there. Did you ever hear the story about their CEO and the, the hot dog thing? Uh, yeah, uh, someone wanted to yes, raise the price. Yes, but tell me. Yes, yeah. tell me. But I'll, I'll paraphrase it. But okay, more sure. or less, they had a new president or VP or someone that came in. They wanted to raise the hot dog to three bucks. And he said, if you raise the price of the hot dog, I will kill you. <laughs> I, yes, I think I have heard that. Actually, not the punchline I remember. <laughs> Understanding what it is, what you deliver, and then how you deliver that value to your customer. Yeah. And the power of that brand, again, was it an archetype or was it built out that way? Or do you wait to hear what your customers, you know, the, the response you're getting and the, type, and the type of interaction you have? So being very deliberate about your branding, but also being able to, without dropping your values, because values do play into that. This is what we value and this is what we stand for. But ultimately, if you think about a startup, how many times do you need to pivot that to get that market fit? Like, well, and, and that's a bit, that's, that's a whole different thing if we bring it right down, right? Yeah, feeding that thought that I had was, if you're a brand like and you're starting out, how do you even know who you are until you're like in it and those pivots and changes and evolution? I just think of Costco like that brand was built over many many years yeah. of consistency. We're seeing it in this in, the, in more of a complete iteration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But when you're starting out, like you may think you're something. Um, you may think your values are a certain way. How do you pivot once you realize maybe it's not, or maybe you were off board? What if? What if? How do you coach someone through that? I guess do it quickly. Yeah. Try, you know, I, I talk I, on my show. I, I talked to a lot of VCs, a mm-hmm. lot of early stage VCs, and they're like, "Let's be honest. We're in, we're investing in the founder primarily, and often if there's a small team around them, but it's usually that founder and who they are and what they said. Are they coachable?" Are they willing to realize that maybe their version of the idea isn't the final form, that there is some adaptation? And are they willing to adapt and are they willing to do it quickly? So I'm listening from an investor's criteria going, yeah, yeah, I like your idea, but this is just your idea now. Like it could change six times in the next next year. Are you willing to go on that ride and are you willing to get close enough to the customer and go, oh, maybe I wasn't right. And I've heard that so much. I've heard that from founders too that are a little bit down the road and like, what would you do differently? I would realize sooner that I was off track. Right. And I, and I would let go of it and move forward. Yeah. Which is so easy for you and I to say sitting here, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> <laughs> Here's what I would do in that situation. <laughs> I heard a quote the other day, and I'm going to, again, just paraphrase, but it was something to the effect of uh, marketing isn't real and it's only needed if your product is shitty, basically. Hmm. Um, that's, like inter- have, that's interesting. If you have a good product or service, you don't need marketing. What do you, what do you make of a quote like that? It's a tough one. In the world that we live in, you always need awareness. Mm-hmm. And we'll use the Uber example. There was a word of mouth component that pushed it around. There was probably some other factors. Again, I can't quote that article verbatim on what else was, was going on. And let's talk about that. Let's talk about marketing, advertising, and sales. Let's break that up. So, you know, so many times people forget those things. Like advertising, like what is marketing? That strategy of understanding who's your customer, what matters to them, what the competition is doing. Like there's a lot of strategy and thinking to go into that. Yeah. You might have a great product, but define great. What if what if your competitor has an equally great product? Did you do your market research and does that fall under marketing? Like that's a delicate balance. Yeah. So I would say maybe what that person I, I might I might guess, bold for me to think what they were saying. Yeah. But if you have a good product, you don't need advertising. Mm-hmm. Because I'll tell you about it. I'm gonna we'll probably talk about some products today that you know maybe both of us are enthusiastic about and we want to share with the other one to share with your friends back to the Uber example. But doing that research and getting that right and understanding because what makes a product great is its relevance to the consumer who's going to use it. Right. It's going to give you money for its its its, its service or it's it's the widget itself. So if you've done your research and you've done 
and you have a really good understanding, or maybe you didn't do your research, you just came up with a really good idea, and all of a sudden the market's like, oh my God, we have to have this. Yeah. I think those are few and far between. Yeah. We hear about them. It's like it's like a celebrity. We love to fall in love with celebrity. There are certain products I think we can put in that celebrity category, but a lot of them, they struggle. There was a good idea, and maybe there's a need, but the way they packaged it, or the way they showed up, or the feature that they talked about first, even word of mouth, isn't the feature that the market is the problem they're actually solving. Right. If you get that right, I think you can get a lot of traction through word of mouth and getting into the right channels and getting into the right groups. Sooner or later, if you want to go to scale, I do think advertising in whatever form, and that's a broad, broad term, mm-hmm. can play a factor. It's not a universal truth, but I think you've got to unpack what those two things mean to go, well, yeah, am I going to go spend an advertising where you can really light money on fire? Like in a big way, you know. It's, <laughs> it's a, the look a, on your face tells me you know that uh, deeply in your heart. <laughs> well, it's a tricky thing. Um, like, a, how do you value a brand? I know there is like criteria and mathematical equations you can use to put a value to a brand. You know, McDonald's is worth X amount. Totally, yeah. And they have spent a lot of money to get that value. Uh, but I think, especially when it comes to a small business, like, how do you get ROI on on the marketing, advertising, PR investments, and it's it's tricky and and what i find is a lot of companies that are even selling the, that solution that marketing that advertising mm-hmm. whatever a they never promise anything cuz you can't <laughs> and and b no like, we try we try not to <laughs> well yeah and i get it but like you know let's let's just use the example you want to invest in a website and mm-hmm. let's just say you're going to spend $5000 on a website you, you ideally i mean you probably want to make $10000 on that investment but as a starting point you want to try to recoup that but is that the right way of looking at it? Like I'm going to get $5,000 in sales in some time horizon for making that investment? Or am I increasing the value of my brand by X amount? And that needs to factor into the ROI. And I know there's not like one solution, but it is it is tricky. And there's a lot of people out there selling a lot of stuff and it's hard to kind of navigate. Let's let's spin it a little bit because you're, you're entering into a cool, a cool uh, vein of conversation. Expense or capital expenditure? Yeah. So how do you value the team? We're sitting in front of a coffee shop right now on 33rd. How do they value their t- tenant improvements? Did, was it worth $100 a square foot to them? Was it worth 150 Was it worth 200 How long was it going to take them to recoup that? How mm-hmm. long is their lease? It's a 10-year lease. They invest $100,000 to make this look awesome. And then they get to use the benefit of that for the next 10 years. Probably wouldn't last that long. They'd probably have to do a reno. So I build my website. A website's a good one because I would argue that a website in its entirety that's supporting your brand, telling your story, has some sales information, has company, has contact, has address. It, it does a lot of work. Yeah. We're not talking about a landing page for a campaign. That's different because right. that might live for six months and go away. To look at it more from a capital expenditure perspective, because when you're a small business, everything's an expense. Yeah. But if I buy a month's worth of ads on Google, that's an expense. It's gone. Yeah. I don't get to use it again. I don't get to. But that website, I'm using it over and over and again. Yeah. So then the argument is: Are you did it get spent and it's vapor and it's gone, mm-hmm. or are you de- should you depreciate it like you would if you bought a piece of major equipment? Right. Website, I think, sits a little bit in that category. And you also have to look at your business. Is website going to play a big part? There's an argument that. Geez, you don't even have a website? Are you even legit? Yeah. Like there is a legitimizer, but you don't have to blow out and build a $100,000 website to have something there. Yeah. But what are you selling? Are you selling a $250,000 B2B industrial piece of equipment? Mm-hmm. Someone's going to expect you to not be operating out of a garage because they might not take you seriously. Sure. You're selling a $20 widget. Should you spend $10,000 on a website? Oof, I don't know. Who are you selling the widget to? Is it maybe you're going to be selling at the farmer's market on the weekend? Like I do think you need to understand the business, the customer, the value. Alter what you're trying to present, back to brand, the story you're trying to tell, and how much of a long-term value can you place on that investment? Yeah. Because a website is an investment. 
so is advertising, but the second you stop paying, it goes away. Right. So there is a bit of a different, that's harder to quantify if you don't have a direct, like, oh, this click led to this purchase and I can track it back. We're getting better at that, but that is an imperfect science right now. It is an imperfect science, yeah. We want it to be more accurate than it is. Well, and I'm sure, like, if you're selling a solution, you want to have, I guess when you're when you're telling someone or asking someone or working with someone to do a marketing campaign, do you have, like, measures of success or is every situation sort of different? Of course, there's conversions. How much optics can we get on the sales cycle? That's right. really what it comes down to. So we work with a, a major OEM. We do not have direct optics in what we do for them to, and we work with a large home builder as well. Our large home builder, we are measured on marketing qualified leads. We are not measured on sales. Right. We will get sales information in that case, but fundamentally because the long the sales cycle of a home is significantly, could be three months, could be six months. We could be doing research today for our house. We're gonna to wanna to buy a year from now. But that marketing qualified lead that came from a Facebook ad or an Instagram ad or, or some type of a post or, or, or even out of home, depending on if they got down the journey, we'll track that and it can be quantified because it is a very, like it has, they have a very disciplined and sophisticated sales process that we can get that information. Where we work with a large OEM, I don't know if you went on a website today, looked at a motorcycle and went into a dealer tomorrow and bought it. I just don't know. Mm -hmm. Fair. So we'll track things like uh, built-in price. We'll track on dealer locators. So we'll find metrics that are going to be relevant to the realm in which we operate in. If it's e-commerce and you sell pens, we are going to track pens. But we don't work with a lot of e-commerce companies. A lot of them have a, a very much a real life. Someone needs to go and make a transaction. Yeah. So for that, it can be it can be challenging. And of course, it does flush out. But it's not often a one-to-one -one, like we did this and that was the yield. It's looked at at maybe broader quarterly or annual uh, basis. Right. So we worked together for three months and 100,000 people viewed the ad or the product like we created that funnel what yep. happens after that is really on the business depending depending on the business yeah sure. the, the closer we can get and you're, you're, it's getting better all the time and companies are getting more sophisticated and smaller companies have access to better tools so absolutely but a lot of times in that world it is tough to draw a straight line depending on what you're doing if you're doing pay-per-click and you can map out through also the analytics on the website you can get as detailed as as, as you can based on what you want to measure but if you don't have a way to track directly that the sale was done, there can be a gap there. Do you think sometimes companies can get lost in those, like almost too much information? Yes. <laughs> yes. I had a conversation today of like, at the begin at the bottom of every analytics where we want to put, why it matters. Mm -hmm. And actually just write one line of why anything on this page actually matters. Because we have so many clients that are like, okay, great. Help me understand, is that a good number? Yeah. Is that the right cost per acquisition? Is that the right cost per lead? And making sure that we're really giving clients that information. So yeah, sometimes data without insights, it's just a noisy slide on a, on a deck. Well, and that can be yeah, kind of I mean, hard too when you're working with multiple industries. Like, it's not like you're in baseball. You got batting average and home runs and standardized like you can kind numbers. of compare some things. But like if you're, you know, one day working with a coffee shop, the next day with, you know, a large industrial B2B company, like... That must be interesting, like for you as trying to help them move their business forward. But do you have kind of like ballpark KPIs to work with? Yes, depending on the realm that you're in, yeah. for sure. If you're going to be online, you're going to do traffic. You're going to look at whatever the conversion point is, like how are we mapping? What did they do in the site? Did yeah. they download a brochure? Did they click this? We're running a LinkedIn ad. Did they opt in to, you know, to a lead magnet? So absolutely, there is some standardization, but our whole purpose is marketing that matters to our clients. And the matters portion, it does move around. 
And absolutely, we need to know the broad scope. Yeah. Sometimes the client's like, well, what should we measure here? Our larger clients, they're more sophisticated. They're like, I want to measure this. Yeah. Say, great, we need access to this. So absolutely, it's not like completely like, oh, what's it going to be today? It's not like that. Yeah, yeah. But our, but you, but clients, clients care about very different things. So we originally kind of looked at our purpose. And because we're more of a broad, a broad agency, we have B2C, we have B2B. We do high volume uh, leads, like where we'll deliver 12, 15, 16,000 marketing qualified leads in a year. We have other companies that are like, man, if we sell 10 of these things in a year, we're killing it because they're a million dollars a piece and that's our business and it's awesome. So we really stopped and said, well, what is it, what is it that we do? Well, first of all, let's find out what actually matters to our client and then work from there. And it sounds a bit loose, but after 15 years, which we're celebrating our 15 year this, this fall, for, formally, we decided that, yes, 15 years ago is when we made it real. We started dating, so this is our anniversary. And it always comes down to when you get that right, it's a long-term relationship with trust and it grows. When you don't get the what matters right, there's frustration and sometimes you don't even know where it comes from. Right. Do you, do you guys have a pretty refined process at this point in terms of figuring out what matters to a client? Because I'm, I'm going to assume sometimes they either don't know or maybe they think something matters and you kind of got to help them get narrowed in on that? Sometimes sometimes it's a, it's a lead, suggest, you know, prescript, ask more. Sometimes they're just like, just tell me, okay? Like enough of the Socratic approach, trying to get it out of me and make it natural. Tell me what I should measure here and then we'll see how it correlates to the business. It's usually very collaborative. Absolutely, they're looking to us for leadership. Often the line will be like, well, if we knew that, we wouldn't have to hire a marketing company. I've heard that before. I'm like, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Here's what I think we should do based on, but we've always taken a very business-led approach. So our investment at the beginning is always to understand their business as deeply as we can. Yeah. I don't care if you like the color blue. I don't care even if you like that ad campaign. We'll get to that. Explain to me your business. And that's good. Fe- that's feedback that we get. You know, when a true core competency, you can always identify it. And a bunch of years ago, we're like, wow, clients keep saying us like, geez, I was with the other agency and you know, they, they showed us their deck, they showed us their awards, they showed us their real. You spent the first hour asking us questions that half of them we couldn't even answer about our business. We gotta go and do our homework. Wow, that's different. And for the companies that that resonates with, we're, we're a right, right fit. fit, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you start to realize, yeah. oh, oh, this is how we do it differently. And that's my DNA, it's my business partner's DNA. He comes from more of a creative background. But to be truly effective, you gotta understand the business. And that's why a lot of our clients I think our, our large OEM, we've, we've been the agency of record for Honda Canada. We're going on to, this will be our 12th year. Wow. And you don't stick around with an agency, with a client like that, unless you make them the hero, understand their business, know their product as well or better than them. That's a bold statement, but they have a lot of changeover and they have staff move around. So sure. they really rely on us to go, hey, what did we do last year on that campaign? Did it work? Let's just shift it and let's do it again. So that's something I'm incredibly proud of. And You're that like was what that defined partner. us. Yeah. That totally defined us. Like, I don't know where we'd be today if we hadn't won. We won that job when we were nine people. We were the smallest company in the pitch. The smallest, uh, there was four companies in. They flew to Calgary to ask us to pitch. We pitched against uh, Tag, Grip, and Hive. The smallest agency was 120 people. And then there was us at nine. Don't tell Honda, but we had no business winning that account. <laughs> except that we were incredibly passionate about it. We threw literally everything in the kitchen sink. We took one of our guys from here. He moved back to Ontario. We put a, a desk at Honda's head office. During the middle of the presentation, the guy who was running the count, Trevor was his name at the time, he says to me, he goes, hey, Tyler, we'll take a little break here, water break, 15 minutes. He goes, I haven't seen a slide that, that says you'll move one of your guys to Toronto, but you know, if you had that slide, that would be good. And I'm like, thank you, just sir. That's really go like I add the slide into the deck as we're sitting there in the room. <laughs> And he's like, oh, that's fabulous because we were a little bit concerned about you being in Calgary. But if you're willing to move somebody here, we're good. That's not a problem. 
And then we won. Then we won the won the business, and it literally changed our life. How's <laughs> that for adaptability? Just <laughs> on the fly, man. On the fly. <laughs> is uh, so. I mean, for that, that's that's amazing. Is there a company that you've worked with on this journey that just like surprised the hell out of you? Like maybe it was like a just like a random call or something that came in, and then you like they ended up doing some amazing stuff. Probably, I feel like I'm dating myself because it was quite a few years ago. But we were uh, we became agency record for Lifemark Health. Mm-hmm large physiotherapy chain across the country. I had a friend of mine and the medical system, the medical world in Canada, they're, they're not, they're not big advertisers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they don't spend a lot of money on marketing. They're using medical letter. They, these are all um, ex physios, clinic directors, those kind of people that looked at and go, ah, marketing, like that's kind of fluffy. Like we help people that, that should be word. That should be good enough. Yeah, yeah. But a good friend of mine was the VP of HR there. One day we we're just having coffee and she was ranting. She's like, ah, oh, man, we're short physios across the country. I think they were down like, like 80 some physios across 120 clinics. At, at an average of $16,000 of revenue per month. Like, it was a significant number. And the CEO's like, HR, solve the problem. So she was complaining to me about, like, oh, we're just using an, an, an outdated. This was, like, 2014. So online recruiting was starting to get rolling. Monster was on the scene. But it wasn't as prevalent as it is now. Yeah. And I remember going, I've been, I've been doing a lot of fooling around with AdWords at the time, kind of myself personally, which I would be lost if I got into that program today. We have amazing, talented people that know that program really, really well. Yeah. If you don't know that program, it's a good way to lose a lot of money quickly. What, like, what program is it? AdWords. AdWords. Yeah, okay. Google. Just, buy, just, just buying. Just, it's like going to Vegas and thinking you have a, th- you have a, you have a system <laughs> and finding <laughs> out very quickly that, oh, there's a system. It's just not the one. You're not the one who has it. Um, <laughs> I pitched them on the idea of like, well, why don't we just run a campaign? Like we do a paid campaign. We'll target these keywords. There doesn't seem to be any competition. We'll put up some landing pages. We'll write the job description on there. We'll talk a little bit about the culture and why and why they should work at LifeMark Health. And this was like, sounds so normal to talk about today. Back then they're like, this is like, this is crazy. And I said, we'll do the whole thing for 7,500 bucks and we'll run it for two months. So I was curious. I wanted to test it. And my friend got to push through. She's like, yeah, let's do it. We can, she goes under 10 grand. We can, we can, we can just test it and see how it works. All of a sudden, they started getting resumes. And all of a sudden, the clinic directors are like, this is amazing. Where are these, like, we're getting physiotherapists. Like, you're solving our problem. And we're not having to go out and find these people ourselves. Yeah. And all of a sudden, it starts to work. And then all of a sudden, the staff are like, or these new hires are like, hey, where's this cool culture that you talked about on these landing pages? They're like, oh, shit. Like, we need to, we need to get, we need better onboarding. We need to sell this whole thing. And this was a LifeMark Health had grown through acquisition. I think they doubled in size in two years, like 60 to 120 clinics. So you've always got... What's the culture? Who are we? Sure. So we helped them build uh, lifemarkcareers.ca, which was a site completely dedicated to recruiting and culture. Then we worked with them to build some of their employer branding around um, hiring, recruiting, onboarding. It went from like literally a fluke of a conversation over coffee to a multi-year engagement, multiple campaigns. At the end, they were getting between 1,500 and 2,000 resumes per month on average, qualified, wow. qualified. Because all of a sudden, it became the go-to spot for massage therapists, um, physiotherapists, uh, occupational health. Like, it branched out into, I think, about eight or ten different disciplines. Fascinating. And kind of solved their problem. And it was probably closer to my heart because I worked on it really closely at the time. And it was literally just like, hey, test and learn. Let's give it a try. No guarantees. If it doesn't work, well, I guess it was a bad strategy. And it turned into a multi-year you know, excellent client, but phenomenal results. Literally, just off of a coffee chat. <laughs> I love it. Who knows what comes from who a coffee knows? chat? Asap? Who knows, man? Do you have a? Do you have the, the the reverse of that, where something seemed like a slam dunk and just like did not go? Oh wow! There's, there's, probably always, a lot. there's always a few. There's always a few of those. <laughs> um, when you take on a client, when you know you shouldn't, and you're like, this isn't resonating. Like this is going to be a challenge. They're looking for something that's unrealistic or. You know, sometimes the sales guy in me goes, "Oh yeah, we can make it work." And after I'm like, "Oh, 
I don't think this is the right fit. We, we should not date. This is not going to be good. Um, Do your spidey senses suss those out a little more as you... It does. Yeah. I would say yes. I think they sussed them out then. I just ignored it because <laughs> you're like, well, you need revenue and you need to make payroll. Like you need and not not saying that that's not the case anymore. I just I feel like right now we've never had the be- we've never had a better culture. We've never had more awesome. And we've had other great cultures. Just right now, I'm just I'm also appreciating just like it's really good right now. Celebrate that. Like yeah. the team is gelling. We've also got great clients. Uh, we have no assholes. We don't have any asshole clients. We don't have any asshole staff. The old joke, if you don't think there's any assholes, it's probably you. Maybe it is me. I don't know. I don't know. I've been getting good feedback from it, so I'm not sure. I don't want to, I don't want to rule it out. Is that part of your process, the 360s? and like? Absolutely. The- we haven't done it for a few years, actually. But yeah, we did 360, especially on the leadership team. Yeah. We do a very active, very open, collaborative coaching with our team. We went full remote during COVID. Right. So communication is not taken for granted at Cormotive. We get on calls. We do culture connects. We chat with each other. Um, once a quarter, I meet with every single one of the team. I send them a $10 coffee card because that's what I would do if I was in town. I'd take them to coffee. And you know the best part? Half of them have started sending them back to me. They're like, hey, it's my turn to buy. Oh. So that's super cool. And that was a, that, like, I'm like, no, no, no. They're like, no, I want to take you for coffee. So, super cool energy. You got that infinity 100%. Sign totally. Yeah. Absolutely, man. So we do stuff like that. Like none of it's groundbreaking, but we go over the top to make sure that everyone feels included. And everyone that works for us is a work remote person. Mm-hmm. They, 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 they self-selected. The people that weren't uh, either left and moved on, and that's fine. That, that's great. There was a big reckoning after COVID where everyone kind of reassessed. But our team right now, we had team members just working in Mexico. We had someone down in Florida. We had someone who went to Nova Scotia and worked. The flexibility that we give them and the trade-off of going, hey, you got to communicate a little bit more. You can't take stuff for granted. You've got to put it into Asana. You've got to put it into Slack. You can't rely on the office bump in to give someone a brief on what the client told you the day before. Sure. And our team has gotten really good at that collaboration, which has, I think, really led to a really conducive culture internally. But you have to work at it. Like, if you let it drift, it'll drift super fast and remote. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, instantly. Fascinating. So you guys just leaned all in on the remote. Got rid of both Got rid of both offices, Calgary and Toronto. Hmm. Has there been any, like, I mean, the communication, but any other challenges with going full remote? Of course there is, but I'm going to go with no because I block those out or we overcome them or we find a way to, to put it, put those in the distortion, the reality distortion field, to quote of Steve Jobs. Um, we've gone so all in on it and our team is so all in on it. Like part of that coffee connect, I say to my staff, I always like, what can I do to make your life better? Is there anything I can do to make like during, during COVID, our number one COVID culture strategy was be easy. Be easy to get done at five. Be easy to find your files. Like anything we could do to remove friction for our team. Because in a world of unknowns, like, hey, when's COVID going to be over? Because you're the CEO. I'm like, I do not know any of this information. <laughs> um, what are we going to do? Are we going to go back to the office? I'm like, I don't know. But for right now, I'm going to try to make your life as easy. You need something for your office? Let us know. We'll buy it, send it to you. Remove friction. So I'm like, when I asked them, I said, what can I do to make, make your life easy? Half of them have said, just don't make me go back to the office. <laughs> So from that perspective, I do believe there are some, some glitches in the matrix, but I think everyone's willing to work around them because the trade-off and the benefit that they get from it perceived, the juice is worth the squeeze. Right. Fascinating. Did you ever think you would live? Well, obviously you didn't, but like how have you have adjusted to that full work from home? Was that hard for you or? It's fabulous. You love it. And I know, you know why? Because of the podcast. Because oh, and we were going to get there. How did you even get into podcasts? I meet more people now than I ever met when I was in the office. I'm with you. Like, dude, I'm, it is it is making friends on steroids. Like, yeah. it's great. Yeah. <laughs> when you have two or three. 
Uh, I have two. I two. have I have uh, Collisions YYC, which has a few sub themes on it. Where I decide to go down a rabbit hole on follow the money and talk to VCs, or I want to do learn more about ESG and sustainability. So I create a show called Sustainable Matters. Current and Critical was uh, was designed to be like what's news and newsworthy, but that's just become this generalist. Anything I'm interested in just goes into that bucket. And then I've got They Just Get It, which is the original one I started back in 2018, and then Collisions I started in 2019. Right. Combined, 360, 460. 450 episodes right now. Damn. Props. Thanks, man. I thanks. Know, thanks. I know how much goes into it. I think. Yeah, I'm yeah. At, thank you. You can. You. You know. You get it. You get it. I think I'm at around 150, 160. Nice, man. We started in uh, two, 2020. Do you so. know, we are the outliers in every sense of the word. Like, what is it on Apple to iTunes? Like, 25 percent on there. Only out of like two million, only have one or two episodes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> like nice. 150, man. That's awesome. Good yeah, for you, man. Awesome. Yeah. 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 I love it. My goal this summer, I think you, you might have saw my LinkedIn post, was to do 50 coffee chats. I did. I saw that. Yeah, I did. And uh, I think this is 20. I love your LinkedIn, man. You're always out there. You're always active. I appreciate it. Man. Oh, thanks, man. I like LinkedIn. It's my it's my business channel that doesn't, you know, it doesn't feel like it's jumped the shark. Yeah. Whereas sometimes Instagram, you're like, oh, it's a waste of my time. But I'm on LinkedIn. I'm like, oh, I know that person. I know Seth. Oh, he's doing something cool. Like, I do. There's something about it. I still think it it adds value to my life uh, on, the, for, uh, on the majority of the time. Where some of the others, I'm like, was that a waste of 15 minutes of my life? Uh. <laughs> It's that, a great that's connector, another podcast. That's like, another podcast. LinkedIn is a great connector. I have met more people through yeah. LinkedIn directly. Well, so you and I met. It was on LinkedIn. Here, and, here, and here we sit. And here mm-hmm. we sit. And I mean, we met. I think we had a coffee chat like mid-COVID. That was, like, yeah, totally. Early days. started the podcast. Early days. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, we've talked about doing this for a while. So, so here, here we are. So I got into it because I don't love writing. I, I'm, I'm actually finding a, I'm finding a love of writing uh, now. But when I didn't, I was like, okay, I need to create some content. The world doesn't need a marketing, doesn't need more marketing articles or like, I just don't want to write. My buddy, I said, my buddy, I go, hey, I think I'm going to start a podcast. Two days later, he shows up with all the gear. Here you go. I had all this at home because I used to, because he was in the music industry. He goes, there you go. I'm like, oh shit. Well, all right. No excuses. And then I, uh, then I uh, cheated the game. I picked three, three people I knew, Carlene Donnelly, uh, Chad Hughes, and Billy Frothing. Okay. So Carlene is the executive director at Cups. Chad Hughes is the owner, one of the founders at, um, oh, why am I drawing? I just drew a blank. I go back to Billy at uh, uh, Land Solutions. Sorry, Chad, if you're listening to this, Land <laughs> Solutions, and Billy Friley from Village Ice Cream. Yeah, like I know all of them well, and they all like not for profit space. Guy kind of like two guys who kind of came up from like I would say rags to riches stories. But that's over exaggerating, but guys that, that made their own way. They were doing really well in a time in Calgary when 2018, it was doom and gloom everywhere. It was like, oh my God, everyone's unemployed and the oil is never coming back and it's over and Calgary's done and all this bullshit, which is, was completely, anyways, ridiculous at yeah. the time. I thought it was ridiculous then too, I will boldly say. And I said, you know, I'm also tired of people not taking the time to go, oh, geez, look at Billy. He's got that successful ice cream store. Oh, he's lucky. I'm like, do you know what he went through to build that store and flogging ice cream in downtown Calgary in January and, and office hours <laughs> trying to get his brand out there? And so I picked three people whose stories I really want to tell, who I thought I knew kind of well. And I did these three episodes, and I was like, wow, it was kind of fun. But the biggest thing is I went, I actually didn't know these people at all. Mm. I didn't know their stories. I didn't really know where they came from and like their hardships and their trials and their errors and their wins and their losses. Like I focused it all on Joseph Campbell's The Hero's Journey, which is that, that you know, introduction of a character, kind of the three-act play. You evolve, the character overcomes something, and there's some kind of resolve at the end. We oftentimes look at the resolve and sometimes to minimize maybe how we feel about it or to just be lazy, we don't go back and ask about the other parts of the story. Yeah. And I walked away and then I, I, I aired them. And I'll be honest, you get a little bit of positive feedback. You're like, well, I feel good about that. Well, that was kind of fun. Yeah. I'm like, I kind of like that. Yeah. And I said, well, I'll do a couple more. And then I started doing They Just Get It. And then I met my buddy, Kevin Crow. 
Chad Hughes from Land Solutions introduced me to Kevin. Because you got to meet Kevin. This guy is like, this guy's an animal. He runs like the Moab 240. He has his own. He started Give a Miles, has his own charity. He was employee number nine at Longview Systems. Now he's like, they're like a 15. He's like SVP of strategy. He's just like this well-rounded guy. He really wants to get into podcasting. So you should chat with him. Like, sure, sure. So I meet Kevin and Kevin goes, oh yeah, I, wanna, I, think, I think there's a big gap in the Calgary business community of people that are really solving legit problems. And it's not getting the light of day. So no one's like someone across the street trying to solve the same problem and no one's talking to each other. Right. And he goes, we need to come out of this recession. Like we need to come out of this downturn. We need to collaborate. And then he goes, we need to start a podcast. And I was like, whoa, what do you mean we? I have a podcast. I'm good. No desire. <laughs> you got like, three episodes. Completely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At that point, I think he was episode 10 okay. or 12. Yeah, so yeah, yeah like, yeah. dude, literally like that was an ancient, that was, I don't even remember. I don't even know who I was back then. <laughs> I listened to my old episodes. I'm like, that's no, okay. <laughs> but you know, nowhere to go but up. Anyway, so. I said, well, I don't know about doing a podcast with you, but I said, I'll do a podcast with you. I'll interview And he had this whole concept on the four-legged stools, like, you know, do something to pay the bills, do something that fills your soul, do something that drives your passion. So we did a whole podcast about this. Told a story about falling down a mountain with his buddy, break his leg, thinking he was going to get die, getting rescued by a helicopter, like just these crazy stories. So he's a super intense guy, and he's become a very good friend of mine. So we finished the podcast. We're standing there. And he kind of, he does the guy thing. Maybe, maybe women do this to each other. I don't know. I can only speak to my own reference here. He shakes my hand and he goes, okay, man, we're going to do it. We're going to start a podcast. And I had, a, I had a vulnerable moment. But the whole time he's not letting go of my hand. So we're doing the like handshake. And we're yeah, this yeah. far. We're like six inches apart. And he's like, uh, I said, dude, I, I don't like, I have imposter syndrome. Who am I to have a podcast with all these like CEOs and like venture capitalists and politicians and all the people that I've ended up talking to? And he looks at me right now and he goes, hey, man. Because you think when I stand on that starting line for a 240-mile race in the desert that no one's done before and I've never done before, I don't feel I shouldn't be there. But when the gun goes off, I do it anyways. So how about you and I do a podcast? And I was like, I couldn't back out, man. I had to say yes, man. He got me. Totally. Shamed me into it. I call it leadership now in hindsight. I think it was brilliant. And I, I'm forever grateful to Kevin. I give him shout outs every chance I get. And then he just started feeding me guests. So my first 20 guests, he just referred them to me. Boom, 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 boom. boom, boom. And all of a sudden I went, whoa. I'm learning. And all of a sudden, I got really comfortable with the fact that I don't have to know jack all about the topic. I have to be curious. I have to let it, the guests is the hero. It's nothing to do with me. And finally, when I just moved that myself out of that feeling of like, oh, I need to come prepared. I need to come prepared to be curious and have a great conversation. And over time, it all the Venn diagram started to overlap. I talked to two VCs, then I talked to a startup. And I say, well, hey, I heard this from this VC. What do you think about that? But never forgetting that it has nothing to do with me. <laughs> it's always about the guests. They're the hero, and I'm there just to be the conduit for it. And 360 episodes later, I don't know where it's going to go, but I'm going to take it to 500 just 500. because it's a good number. And then we will decide. But 500 is 100% what it's going to be. Because you got it, man. You just got it. Who's your ultimate guest? <sighs> I, can't, I won't say because I fall in love with all my guests. Okay. Mm. Or, ultimate, or like ultimate get. Like who would be your... Oh, the, on, the, on the get list. Yeah. Oh, that's good. I've been thinking about that because, you know, you... When you do 150, you, you go through phases of getting re-excited. Yeah. And you go phases of like, oh, I'm enjoying this, but I'm like, I need to spice it up. So I haven't sat down to do that yet. I don't know right now. That's a really, that's a really good question. I think that we went all in on Collisions YYC. We went all in on Calgary. That quickly elevated to Alberta. That quickly elevated to Western Canada. But we very much kind of locked into that market. And right now, about 88% of our monthly downloads, speaking of the numbers, <laughs> the numbers that matter for podcasters, downloads and where they're coming from, about 85 to 86% of our audience is Alberta. So it's working 
but and do I need to grow beyond that? Do I need to get into some of the more power players in the Toronto market or the Vancouver market in the VC space? Do I need to like I talked to an amazing woman today? She works for a big think tank out of uh, the University of Waterloo doing um, research and analysis on mitigation on the impact of climate change, specifically in relation to forest fires, flooding and extreme heat. Fascinating. And I'm sitting there listening to this woman just rhyming off stats. I'm going to bring her on. Because although she's not from Calgary, this is something that affects all of us all across all across globally. So I'm branching out to, to characters like that where there is this awesome subject matter expertise that is almost irrelevant to where because it all of us should care about it, right? right. So I'm, I'm around that right now, but I don't have a, a five-star guest list. I need to create it. So that's my homework after this episode. Well, there you go. It inspired something. <laughs> you did. <laughs> Many things. I've been asked that question a couple times. I think my ultimate one, I've said a couple times, would be Masai Ujiri. Toronto Raptors. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, right on. Well, you're a huge sports guy, right? So that, yeah, that's, I'm, I'm sure that like, it's like getting to talk to your heroes. That's awesome. Yeah, sports, yeah, yeah. leadership. I think, uh, I think he'd just be a really interesting guy to jam with for an hour. Very cool, man. That's, that's, that's fantastic. How do you find your guests? Um, no set way. I mean, that's another question you get asked a lot as a <laughs> Me too. That's why I asked you first. <laughs> I think uh, everything from cold outreach to yeah. hey you need to talk to my buddy to sometimes i've just shown up places and started podcasting with people like there's no that's awesome i don't know there's no formula really there's no that's the cool thing about podcasting there's no rules really and and it's just like connecting with people so i've gotten people all kinds of ways i think one of the coolest guests i ever got uh mike morialli he's the ceo of the canadian elite basketball league yeah and this is three years ago when the league was like in their second year i didn't even realize he was like cfl legend all-timer with the Hamilton Tiger Cats like I had no idea and I just like cold texted him on Instagram and I was like hey this Canadian Elite Basketball League sounds cool do you want to come on my show and like we had done 10 episodes at that point like had no business reaching out to this <laughs> that's <guy>. amazing I <laughs> love it uh anyway he agreed he came on the show he was amazing and since then I think we've had probably 15 people associated to the league including guys that are now in the NBA and well, now it's easier. I was like, well, if he's been on, I'm going to go on too, right? Well, you get that credibility, 100% right? 100% instantly. And so we've had a few things like that. Like when we got, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, he's a marketing guy um, from CBC. Well, I don't know why I can't think of his name right now. The guy that does the, um, oh, the guy who does his own podcast, does his yeah, own show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, it's... Uh, Under the Influence. Yeah. Terry O'Reilly. Terry O'Reilly. Yes, yes. done. Boom. Jake, like, O'Reilly. So my partner... You got him on. Oh, that's amazing. We had him on. Oh, he's such a dude, man. I've, I've listened to those off and on for years. I think oh. we all have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> season four, we let off the season with that. So JP emailed him. Uh, that's the guy that I do the, the regular podcast with. And he yep. must have emailed him like 50 times. And then they finally replied and we had him on. And that was like... I think JP was like, okay, I've done everything I want to do because that was like his dream guest. And uh, it was such an amazing conversation. That's very, very cool. The hardest one I think I had to jump through the most hoops to get on was Nenshi. Oh, yeah? Yeah, I did him for the 100th episode because I'm like, I remember that. Love him, hate him, don't love him, whatever. It's a, it's a podcast called Collisions YYC. I've got to have the guy on. Yeah. And it took a, a friend who knew somebody and I finally got to his handler. And he's like, I can't tell. So I started talking to him. He's like, oh, okay, so you're actually legit. I was like, okay, sure, if you say so. He goes, I can't tell you the number of people that like, get a podcast mic and go then she's gonna be my first guest he goes two or three of those a week <laughs> so he goes we just we hear the word podcast we just say no but he goes oh you know you were referred by so-and-so that that one took a few loops and how was that conversation it was okay i think he talked for 12 minutes straight was his timing and he called it out of what his goal was to be the longest monologue I guess. Right. <laughs> but no we had a really good conversation i walked away and like i said i fall in love with my guests so i really appreciate it and when we we stayed in the territory stuff he wanted to talk about and it was it was during covid so there was a good conversation to be had there 
and uh, had uh, Chiote Gondak on. I actually, I liked her quite a bit more after the podcast. She was very authentic. She was very upfront with me. We had a good conversation. I reached out to her team and she came on like right away. Right. What happens now with me, I'm sure happens with you. People immediately just pull up the website. They're like, oh, I know, I know some of these people. Sure, I'll come on. Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Or I, I do, and I'm not saying this in, a, in any kind of a broad way, but most people are like, oh no, I've heard of you. I listen to your show. I know who you are. Yeah, absolutely. I'll come on. That happens. That happens way more lately, like in the last year, for sure. Blows my mind when I hear that uh, a little bit. Still, it's uh, funny. I had my favorite no the other day. Oh, okay. Tell uh, me. Tell, what makes it your favorite? Uh, I don't. Just the fact that they replied. Oh, um, fair enough. Because like you send out a lot, or I've sent out a lot, and you just don't get a reply. And that's yeah, part of the enough. game. Uh, but I sent one to Ice Cube's manager, and because uh, they were in Calgary. Okay. And uh, he's doing a podcast tour right now. Okay. So uh, uh, specifically sort of anti-NBA because of the, he owns that big three league or yep. whatever. And I was like, hey, come on my podcast when you're in Calgary. And he actually replied and said because of travel, they couldn't do it. But I was like... That's actually pretty cool, man. That's, that's a pretty that's cool awesome. reply. Yeah, bad respect. That's yeah, cool. That's yeah. actually... I like that. <laughs> Thanks for at least like just being cool about it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, yes lives in the land of no. So... Yeah, yeah, yeah totally. I read an article years ago. I, I try to respond anytime anyone reached out to me. I read an article. It was in Harvard Business Review, and it was um, an F, uh, written by the FBI or the CIA, I think the FBI. But they analyzed um, communication trends in a terrorist cell. And they analyzed the fact that they could be speaking in code or speaking in a language they didn't understand, but they could very quickly identify the hierarchy of the cell by the speed and the volume at which they get responded to. The higher up would get more email, would send emails, respond to very few. The lower down would respond to everything. Mm -hmm. So it was kind of like, you're below me, so I don't need to respond to you kind of mindset. And I said, I never wanted to be that cliche as a CEO, so I'll try to respond. Sometimes you get just cold emails that are almost like, hey, you know, we're friends, we haven't talked for a while. I'm like, I don't know who you are. Like, come on, it's a cheesy sales tactic, like screw off. But I've always tried to be respectful of vendors or people that, like by the hierarchy, and oftentimes, I mean, in business, I'm the vendor. So I really appreciate it. So I try to respond to people just so I don't, just so I'm not that douchebag. Yeah. <laughs> After reading that article about oh, when you're at the top of the hierarchy of the of the of the organization, you just respond way less, yeah. uh, and but the people lower are responding to everybody all the time. What, what do you make of the influx of cold sales pitches on LinkedIn? <laughs> it's easy to ignore, but unfortunately, it's where it, LinkedIn's getting to start to feel a bit dirty. Mm. <laughs> no thought, no research, canned, cut and pasted. Versus like, hey, I know something about you or even that's a little bit cheesy, but at least they put some effort into it. Let's start at the, you know, zero out of 10 for effort. It's just annoying. And like, I get sales is a volume game, but really? Yeah. On that platform? That's, well, now it starts to look like advertising, right? It does. I'm just yelling and hopefully someone happens to hear the 0.1% of people that go, I need your thing that day and I love your annoying strategy. Yeah. If I get one more, would you like to increase your sales funnel? Email? <laughs> I, like, I had two of, the, I got two of those today. <laughs> That's how it starts. That's the first line. I've read it. I, I was like, I just started like delete. You can just read the subject line now. You don't even have to bother and get it and delete it. <laughs> totally. I um, still think you've got to take the time. Anyways, it's personal. It's about them. It's not about you. It's all the same rules, man. I think there there's some universal truths. <laughs> Any? Uh, I had a couple more questions. Any thoughts on the uh, the alien stuff? And the, I don't know why. I just felt like that's funny. Felt- I was listening to uh, I think the X ninety two nine or whatever I was listening to today, and they were talking about it. Like, does all of a sudden now they go? Yep. No, we've been lying to you all along. It's no big deal. It's now it's all of a sudden now they took the stigma away. Yeah. It's like when you're in an argument with someone, you look at them and go, "You're totally right. Hundred percent right." And then they're like, I've got nothing to push back against anymore. Yeah. So I'm not sure, man. I don't know what to think about it. I was processing it after listening to the DJ kind of talk about it. I was like, huh. Because I kind of just got tired of the noise and the friends that were into it and the friends that weren't into it. And I just kind of stopped listening. But now that they've come out and go, like, what's that strategy? What's going on? Should I read into it or should I just go, 
okay, well, give me some more proof. Like, let's see it now. Now I'm more curious to, yeah, to, yeah. to see that. Yeah, yeah. Well, and with, like, the way they film <laughs> Good movies. Good question, by the way. Well, like, movies and stuff, like, they could just put something on TV. And, like, how would you even know if it was real or not real? I we're, don't know. We do live in the era of deep fakes, right? Yeah. I don't If you want to, um, um, Area 51 by uh, Annie Jacobson. Mm-hmm. Her, it's very research-based. It's a declassified U.S. military uh, doctrine. When you get to the end of that book, you're like, I don't need to believe in aliens. I need to believe in what the CIA and the and DARPA was doing during that time was actually way more plausible and way more far-fetched than actually aliens in that whole scene. It's a really, really good book. She's a great writer. If you're into that kind of declassified, I've read all her books. I don't know why I went down that rabbit hole, but like everything from the the, the CIA's work with psychedelics and uh, and phenomenon and psychic phenomenon in the fifties, and when you, when you watch, then you watch Stranger Things, you're like, oh, this is really just about what was actually going on at that time. <laughs> so, anyways, if you want Area Fifty One, you want to go down the rabbit hole, Annie Jacobson, and she unpacks a lot of what was suspicious UFO activity, being the CIA and DARPA testing out uh, basically supersonic jets, and there's a there's actually a guy. They, they were interviewing some ex-Air Force pilots that were test pilots at that time. And they would bring a gorilla mask with them in that cockpit. So if they ever ran into there was a bunch of guys flying around after World War II and nothing to do, literally. And they'd spot these supersonic aircraft, so they'd try to get up close. Yeah. So they'd put a gorilla mask on. So when if they, another pilot even got a glimpse, his story would be like, I saw a gorilla flying a plane, and he would immediately be dismissed as like completely off his rocker. And they're like, it was 100% factual that this group of pilots would bring these gorilla masks with them to use in that setting, as it was talked about in this book. So just to try to discredit the fact that they were testing these supersonic jets, which looked like UFOs in a time when no one was supposed to have supersonic jets. <laughs> Fascinating. Anyways, I, rabbit I, hole. You, you, spun me, you spun me deep on that one. I'm deep on the rabbit hole of just aliens. And so what do you think? What's your thoughts? I mean, I would be very surprised if in this entire galaxy and universe we were the only intelligent yeah. life. Um, I just don't know why I bring it up now, I guess. Like, what's the purpose? And I guess we'll find out. Fair, um, yeah, fair enough. Where, where, will it, where will it unfold? Yeah. But you're right. To think that we are this, the only unique situation like this, is that's not really, that doesn't just make sense. Yeah. And the probability and averages and all that stuff, you're like, come on. And I think Stephen it, Hawking talks about that a little bit in some of his interviews. Yeah, so, like, I just don't know, like, I don't think the U.S. military does anything without some sort of benefit or something. So, like, what's what comes behind it, I have no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I was reading or watching some TikToks about, you know, they're going to, you know, potentially stage an Independence Day-like event. And uh, I don't know, that's very down, far down the rabbit hole. Yeah, but yeah, like, it's war, war of the Worlds, right? Right. So then, you know, then you kind of have this unifying force of bringing the whole world together to fight an alien thing that may or may not be real. I don't know. In the book, Area 51, they talk a little bit about the fact that Stalin's strategy was to stage a War of the World-style event, an Orson Welles-style event, because he saw the panic that that fake radio broadcast induced. And when you get to the um, UFO crash at Roswell, that it was actually perpetrated by the Russians to try to create chaos in American society. Interesting. That's, well, that, that's the theory in that, in that storyline. Hey, man, like, you don't have to look far. Look at COVID and what happened with, like, toilet paper and... <laughs> baby Tylenol and like all the like, we got a little glimpse of how, how close we are to just losing our shit <laughs> honestly yeah yeah so based on very little information and just react yeah <laughs> it's fragile man it's very fragile yeah <laughs> yeah we don't have to look back far in our history to see examples of like wow did we actually act that way <laughs> we, we did very quickly I saw um, uh, a really cool a friend of mine was on the board for uh, a large uh, grocery supplier and they had the graph of like 
when toilet paper hit and then cooking products and then um, hair dye and like and they could cycle through everything that spiked emptied shells spiked emptied shells over over a period of the first six eight months of COVID it was really interesting to see it graft out I forgot about like times when you would go to the store and there's no flour yep. or sugar or just like random products I remember one time I went there's no itchy band I'm like no itchy band in the entire <laughs> Walmart I'm like what I went to a Walmart once during COVID. I don't even know when it was, but it was then when there's like, oh, there's no baking goods. There's no nothing. And you go in and I was just like, I love the propaganda machine, right? So I go into the store and I see the shelf where all the bread is supposed to be. And it literally looks like a zombie apocalypse. Like there's like shit half hanging off it. There's no bread anywhere. (laughs) But then you turn 180 degrees and there's vegetables as far as you can see packed to the nines. And I'm like, so I take this picture. We're all going to starve and die. I take this picture. I'm just like, oh, shit, I guess I have to eat vegetables. <laughs> like, it was so funny. Like, depending on the angle at which you viewed the store, it was abundance or, oh, my God, like, Walking Dead has just happened and the zombies are in the streets. <laughs> totally. And all the people that would, like, take that angle, take that photo, and then all of a sudden everyone's running into the store. I put both side by side. I was like, people, just remember there's always perspective and sometimes you just need to turn around. <laughs> yeah. The most One of the most fascinating things on the other side of this is a total random aside. But somehow, like now chicken thighs like skinless boneless chicken thighs used to be like the most expensive chicken product you could buy okay and now they are like the same price as chicken breasts and i cannot for the life of me reconcile how that happened that's really interesting i'm gonna have to uh i order all my meat from um or majority of my meat from tk ranch yeah which is an amazing uh grass-fed grass finish uh, no soy no corn fed ranch so the chicken is so good and i just ordered a bunch of chicken thighs and i need to go look at the price yeah but i was i do remember commenting like, they didn't seem expensive. Like, there's two in a pack, and it wasn't that expensive. So, like, oh, yeah, give me five of those. Like, it actually looked reasonable, but I didn't create a comparison. Yeah. I just placed my order last night. That's why it's the only reason it's top of mind. It's totally random, but it just, every time I go in the store, I'm like, it just doesn't make sense. Why can I buy this for, anyway? Chicken thighs are so much better than so chicken much breasts. Better. They're, like, a hundred times better. Like, like, I don't know. If you ever went through the boneless, skinless chicken breasts and, like, lean vegetable phase, it's horrible. It is. It yeah, and most chicken breasts, no like, flavor. they pump them full of water. and They yeah, totally do. Yeah, it's a whole I thing. knew a guy in town. That was what he got paid. He got paid seven cents a pound or something to tumble the chicken because it increased the weight by 25%. He was doing that for Costco. He built a whole new wing on his uh, on his butcher shop to do that. Have you ever had uh, Nicole Gomez on your pod? No. Oh, you should. Okay. Uh, she's a celebrity chef. Okay. And yeah, then, I know. I know the name. Yeah, she owns a uh, Cluck and Cleaver with her sister. Oh, okay, cool. And right I on. think they're opening a new location down in the south. Anyway, she had a whole thing about you know, we we talked about chicken for like an hour. Nice. Um, I, I would actually. You know what? Anything food related. I just got asked to come on a. Um, it's to do with. Karaya, which is the uh, old Calgary Family Distress Center, they're doing like a celebrity influencer, which I'm surprised why I got invited, cooking contest. Oh. And so I got invited on in October because I think I've been posting a bunch of food on my social media. And uh, Connor Curran from Local Laundry is going to be there. Multi, multi-time guest on our show. Yeah, yeah. Connor, Beauty. he's an awesome dude, man. And Mike, do you know Mike Procy? No. He's at TC Energy, great guy, uh, high energy, uh, just I'm really involved in it. He was in part of the innovation team at TC. I'm not sure what he's doing now. But how to start up for a while, end up at TC, kind of done a bunch of things. Him and I have connected. Anyway, so it's the three of us, and then they're partnering us with some also local chefs. I'm not even have any idea how this is going to go down, but it's all for a fundraiser. 
So it's kind of like raise money. So I'll be reaching out to you because I'm going to raise money because I got I'm in it to win it. Awesome. I don't I don't know I have no clue what that means. Awesome. But uh, yeah, I found myself in a in a celebrity influencer, which just makes me laugh to even say that out loud. Anyways, cooking competition in October October 19th, I think. So I'm looking forward to it. That's fantastic. <laughs> yeah. well, I can't say too much about it yet, but I have an event that I'll reach out to you that's coming up in November. Okay, amazing. More to, okay, more to, more to come so we can. All right. Uh, yes, yeah. I love it, man. Yes, it's, <laughs> it's all about it's all about elevating the community. We all we all live together. I love it. Exactly. Um, Final question. Sure, man. What's your favorite song to sing along to? My favorite song to sing along to? Oh, it's not a song. It's a, it's an actual set. So I'm going to go down a little bit of rabbit hole and give you the long answer. I'm going to pull it up here. So I was to it this morning. I'm a big SoundCloud guy. Uh, I listen to lots of electronic music. And is that there's a set I'm listening to right now uh, called a Corella Dust. And it is uh, just, just if you're curious, uh, number zero, number sign zero five eight Corella Dust. It is so sexy. The lyrics are so good. It's like I've been listening to it on repeat. Like it's there's probably about a forty minute section in this track right now that I'm absolutely loving. And like the sounds, like the way it rolls together. But then also the words. You know when you go like, oh, I love the way it sounds. Then you start listening. You're like, actually, this is really good. And it's this whole journey. And I love a good EDM DJ that can kind of take you on a journey. It's not just they slam a bunch of tracks together. You listen and it kind of rolls and it kind of pulls you in. So I'm really sucked into this right now. I've probably listened to it, oh, uh, yeah, in the last four or five days. Probably listened to it like 10 times. My wife is like, do we really have to listen to this again? I'm like, oh, yeah, totally, for sure. So I do cold plunges every morning. So I put it on while I'm doing cold plunges and just get really zoned out and get into it. Amazing. I love it. <laughs> That's so random. That's probably not what you're looking no, for. No, like no, no. Just an absolute song. But I love it. Um, do, you, do you do the Wim Hof breathing with the cold plunge? I do a little bit at the beginning. Um, not the full Wim Hof. I did Wim Hof during COVID, I think, like a lot of people. So I haven't done that. I've just been really focusing on... Right now, That's hard to get the bath cold because the water in Calgary is warmed up. Mm. In the winter, in the, in the spring, it's easy because you can fill the bath at like 45, 48 degrees, which is too cold. I like 52, 54 is my number. But right now it's kind of in the in the low 60s, so you kind of get in. It's like <gasps> cold, and then you just like okay, this isn't so bad. Yeah. So I haven't been doing so much of the breathing. I do more box breathing, kind of four yeah. four four four, kind of cycling through that and really getting into the into the zone of it. But haven't gone back to the Wim Hof journey. It's, it's on the list. Mm. I did it once or twice the Wim Hof, and okay. I should do it more. I did like it. Like you definitely. I had a good feeling after, but I just yeah, it gives you a little bit of lift. I was doing it without the cold water because I was trying to always do the cold showers. And I just I freaking hate cold showers. Yeah, but the cold bath. There's something about just kind of zoning and getting into it. I don't know. My wife and I have been doing it now for probably oh shit, almost two and a half months, three months. We do it every morning, and it's a great like. I definitely attribute it to an improvement in mood. Like it gives mm. you a little. You feel a little bit high after. You can take that in whatever version of how you like. Energized, upbeat, positive, like you feel really great. Fills your cup. It does, man. It absolutely <laughs> does. A great way to start the day. A cold plunge and espresso, and I'm ready to rock, man. Ready to roll. Amazing. Well, this was awesome. Sounds of fun, man. Thanks for the invite. Appreciate it. Thanks for making the time. Appreciate it.